Imagine if Instagram were around in late Genesis-era Egypt. Joseph would have been on a Taylor Swift level with followers. His profile would have been filled with adorable photos of him and his family vacationing on the coast of the Mediterranean. And sunset photos at the pyramids. By the time he hit his mid-30s, the man had reached the pinnacle. An upper management job and in high demand. The best chariot, a big house, thousands of employees, fantastic wardrobe, a hot wife, and of course, he was besties with the pharaoh. He works hard, but he's popular and powerful. A real celebrity. But hold up. Wasn't he just pulled out of a ditch and sold as a slave to a guy named Potiphar? Are we talking about the same Joseph? Well, before he got the official blue checkmark on his social media accounts, he was just an enslaved guy, working his way to the top, using the skills he had, opportunities that presented themselves, and a lot of hard work to get there. And God certainly played a part too. I'm Sarah Stone, and this is Dream Big, a podcast by The Gathering. story of Joseph in Genesis 39. He's working for Potiphar, a top officer in Egypt's royal guard. Potiphar has command of an entire army, as well as a massive household. That kind of responsibility can be exhausting. He notices that Joseph has the means to get things done. The story also says that he notices the Lord seems to be on Joseph's side. Every time he promotes Joseph, Potiphar seems to receive a blessing. So it doesn't take long before he puts two and two together and decides to hang up his sandals early. He puts Joseph in charge of his entire estate, kicks back, and enjoys the rewards. The Bible says he literally thought about nothing but what he ate next. I'm sure retirement was great for his waistline. Potiphar had just one rule for Joseph. You can have anything and run the place. Just leave my wife alone. Joseph gladly accepted those terms. He's still a slave, and he didn't want to mess up his high position and good fortune. Potiphar's wife, though, she wasn't super into this agreement. This is the PG-13 part of the story, folks. She noticed that Joseph was, quote, well-built and handsome. That's the Bible's words, not mine. Maybe she was bored. Maybe she was tired of her husband not paying attention to anything but his fancy steak dinners. Maybe she just wanted to be noticed by someone. Anyone. So she decided she wanted Joseph to entertain her. She begged him for weeks on end to sleep with her. But Joseph politely declined. He was a little older, a little wiser than before. 
Participating in this would undoubtedly lead to him losing his job. And on top of that, he laid out the argument that this was a sin against God. But the day came when Joseph found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. He arrived for work to find an empty room with no servants or housemaidens, just Potiphar's wife. He refused her advances one final time and ran from the house. Unfortunately for Joseph, revenge was the outlet of choice that the rejected missus chose to take. She snatched the garment he left behind in his haste to leave, alleged he took advantage of her, and demanded he be thrown in jail. one thing I think we can take away. Potiphar's wife had power, more power than maybe any other woman we know of in that time. And with that power, she chose to use it for evil instead of good. None of us want to see ourselves in her, but we all have influence and power, and we get to choose how we use it. We'll talk more about this idea of power and influence in a future episode. So Joseph was thrown in jail, one of Pharaoh's white-collar ones, but still, jail for something he didn't do. I'm not going far out on a limb here to say that this was a crossroads for old Joe. He had already done the rock-bottom pit scenario once before and probably didn't want to repeat it. Those old dreams of power and leadership seemed so unlikely, so distant, so unattainable. But instead of losing faith and losing hope, turning away from God, Joseph actually turns to God. This is not explicitly written, but we can tell that Joseph has done some growing up from that day in the pit with his brothers. Here's the thing about time and experience. It can make us wiser if we let it. The same goes for adversity. The hardest times, the painful circumstances, those moments often lead to the biggest growths and discoveries. And that was true with Joseph too. Without his dad or name to depend on, out on his own, our 20-something Joseph learned a few things about himself. That he is smart and capable, and when he works hard, he succeeds. That he is responsible and a leader. He is learning who God made him to be. And more than that, he has learned that God has gotten him through much worse pits. So, instead of turning away from God in his jail cell, Joseph trusts that God is with him and will not let his dreams die. And so through all of this, he quickly draws the notice of the prison commander, who puts him in charge of the prison, going from lowly prisoner to top guard. One day, two new prisoners arrive straight from Pharaoh's palace, his top sommelier and his top baker. And an odd thing happened. The two of them had weird dreams on the same night. They begin comparing notes the next day, and they notice some similarities in their dreams. Joseph, familiar with dreams and realizing God had given him the gift of interpretation, offered his services to the men. Here's how he broke it down. The similarities in the dreams was the number three. For the sommelier, three vines, and for the baker, three baskets of bread. The three for them both indicated that Pharaoh would invite them back to the palace. Sounds great, right? 
But then the dreams took a turn. The wine steward offered his goblet to Pharaoh and was accepted, meaning he'd be returned to his job. But the baker visualized his loaves of bread being picked apart and eaten by birds. Joseph broke the news that this meant a painful and gruesome death for the baker. Imagine Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Not the ending his new friend wanted to hear, but maybe it would be wrong? Alas, Joseph was indeed correct with his interpretations. Pharaoh threw himself a big birthday bash three days later and invited his old servants turned prisoners back, because that's a normal thing people do. In front of all his party guests, he returned his top wine guy to his old post and then sentenced the baker to death. An important side note here. Joseph, who was confident in his interpretation skills, had asked the sommelier to give credit where credit was due. But his old jail buddy forgot to mention it to Pharaoh. Hate it when that happens. How often do we forget something we think is unimportant, not realizing the consequences on other people? Uh, excuse me while I go make a couple phone calls. Joseph is not completely out of sight, out of mind. It takes just two years, you know, two short years of living in the jailhouse. But it turns out Pharaoh's employees aren't the only dreamers. Pharaoh has two particular dreams that he can't get off his mind, so he calls in all the local magicians and experts, and no one can interpret them. Until one day, maybe over a goblet or two of his favorite pink Moscato, his trusty old wine guy catches on to Pharaoh's distress and remembers that he knows a guy. Pharaoh quickly fetches Joseph from jail and spills the details of his dreams. They happened to be back-to-back and were similar. The first had seven fat cows chilling by the Nile, when seven skinny, sickly cows devoured the first, and yet stayed undernourished. The next dream featured seven healthy stalks of grain being taken over by seven thin stalks. Joseph does two things that have now become his signature moves. First, with legitimate humility, he tells Pharaoh that his interpretations are only done because of the blessing of God to give him the insight. He reminds Pharaoh that it's not him, but God working through him. The second thing he does is he sees an opportunity and leverages his strengths. You see, the dreams mean this. Egypt and the surrounding lands are about to enter seven years of abundance. The crops will be plentiful, the rivers flowing, and the animals multiplying. But the next seven years after that are not looking so good. Famine will strike, and it will be desperate times for Pharaoh and his people. So what does Joseph do? He pulls out the equivalent of a highly detailed PowerPoint presentation, complete with graphs and charts and bullet-pointed plans with all the estimated facts and figures. Then he tells Pharaoh perhaps he ought to find someone wise to run the country over the next few years, executing this detailed plan, saving up the abundance and managing later the lean times. Pharaoh knows a good business plan when he sees one, and even more so, scripture says that he sees Joseph has all the experience in, quote, God-given gifts to be that guy. And so it happens. Pharaoh put a 30-year-old Joseph in charge of Egypt, and introduces him to everyone as the man in control. 
The job not only came with a fancy title, but with fancy jewelry, a new wardrobe, a chariot, and a wife of status. Those dreams of Pharaoh panned out. There was abundance for seven years, and then there was famine for seven. And Joseph led Egypt through it all. Here's the thing that Joseph learned. God may have given him vision, but Joseph also needed to act. Vision is nothing without execution. In this case, lives literally depended on it. But it wasn't just Pharaoh's dreams that were becoming real. Remember those dreams that Joseph had about being in power and leadership? The ones that seemed so hard to imagine when he was a slave, when he was in jail for years? Huh. Well, look where we've arrived. Blue checkmark status. Those dreams came from God, and God didn't abandon Joseph. And even more, Joseph didn't abandon God, even when it seemed impossible to keep dreaming. Maybe those dreams were becoming reality after all. Except, what about Joseph's family back in Canaan? They were part of those dreams too. What has become of them? The story isn't quite over yet.